0: Welcome to another episode of The Evolved Idiots. Today on our show, we have with us Scott Anderson, a serial entrepreneur, a licensed mental health therapist, founder and CEO of Double Dare, executive coaching and consulting, and an author (laughs) on top of everything else. How are you today, sir?
1: I'm great, I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, glad. I appreciate you making some time to to speak with me this morning, and uh, you know, just kind of explore. I really kind of wanted to dive in with you a little bit. Um, you know, I myself, with my own journey, have had uh, worked with a lot of startups and transitioning companies, and so I'm always fascinated by, you know, the entre- entrepreneur's journey and. Um, just tell people a little bit, maybe start off with a little bit about your background and kind of how you got, you know, started on this journey and, and where it's led you to.
1: Sure. Yeah. I was talking to my kids recently about this. I mean, I think that entrepreneurship is, is nature and nurture. And, um, so I'm, you know, for generations going back on both sides of my family, um, I've, I've got entrepreneurs galore. Almost everybody is an entrepreneur in one way or, or another, Um, either in business or uh, a number of lawyer, independent lawyer relatives going way back and, um, farmers and ranchers, but basically all entrepreneurs. And I think that a lot of it has to do a lot of entrepreneurship with me going back in time as part of it is probably genetic, (laughs) Uh, having a, um, either risk uh, tolerance or risk blindness is probably more like it, um, And on the one hand, and on the other, just to be raised in a family that for generations this was a very normal thing to do, and um, actually having a a job was the would be an outlier in my family, and so um, you know it was just normal and and natural, and nothing uh, you know nothing um, unusual about it, and in fact expected in a lot of ways. Um, So I mean, I think that's I was trying to think of how I even got into this, but. Part of it is I'm a terrible employee, really bad (laughs) and um, kind of unmanageable. And, uh, uh, you know, the other part of it is to the serial part of serial entrepreneur is that it's a, uh, uh, you know, I think there's a short attention span problem that I have and uh, kind of a really high level of impatience, as most of my entrepreneur clients have a really high sense of urgency uh, of wanting to, uh, make something yourself and, and get it out in the world. Uh, but once it's out in the world, uh, you know, we tend to lose interest. Um, you know, once it's underway, uh, we serial entrepreneurs tend to lose interest. And, um, especially if it involves committees or, you know, a lot more people involved than it does in the embryonic phase. Yeah. So, um, I actually want to touch. me.
0: Yeah, I actually want to touch a little more on um, on the attention span thing here in a, in a little bit. But talking about the origins, you know, you said it was you might might be genetic, but you know, I, I for example came from a different background where you were taught to to it, it was go to school, you get a degree, you get a job, you get security, you work somewhere for thirty years, and. I obviously haven't went that route but um but you know I wonder how much of it is is nature versus nurture and really like a lot of people that I talk to they talk about wanting to be an entrepreneur or you know what that first step is but there's so much uncertainty with it that it scares most people it's like they don't really have it they don't are not willing to really fully commit. Yes. And what advice or would you give to somebody that's that's kind of thinking, you know, like, I've got this idea, I really want to do it, I am passionate about it, but I've never done this before. And I'm just I need that extra little push or, or whatever, or that what's that first step to, to, to overcome
1: that? That's a great question. Um, because even the most risk tolerant uh, entrepreneur, goes through this or should go through this. I was just, in fact, I was just on a coaching client or a coaching call with a client a few minutes ago. And we were talking about, um, he's getting closer and closer to pulling the trigger on some important decisions and starting a business. And he was talking about wavering and being afraid that his wavering meant that he wasn't committed. When actually wavering is exactly what you ought to be doing. You know, if, if, uh, if you're sane anyway, is that your mind ought to be saying, "Whoa! Have you thought of this? Have you thought of that?" Um, but a lot of people take that wavering, um, that kind of. Um, uh, I, I think of it kind of as childbirth. You know, it's that transition stage where uh, where women think, "Oh my God, I can't do this! I can't do this!" And yet, there's only one direction this can go. Um, it's it's like that. I think in in birthing businesses and. Sometimes when people get that indecision phase or wavering phase, they think, well, that's a sign that I shouldn't do this. Right. You know, the fact that I'm not completely committed. So in answer to your question, uh, two things, I think one of them is just to, to realize, first of all, as a practical matter, that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago in our parents' age to go to school and get a job for 30 years was a viable um, proposition. Um, I think we learned, if we've learned nothing else it's over not the last 20 more. years, <laughs> is that it's not a viable proposition today, right. or that the security our parents may have found in doing that kind of thing simply does not exist anymore. Um, no one expects anybody to stay anywhere for 30 years or anywhere anywhere close. Um, and there simply isn't security in the things that a lot of us put security in, or think we'll get security out of. So that's number one, is just to face the reality that there's not nearly as much security um, in working for somebody else as you might think. And in fact, at least if you're running your own show, you have the security of calling your own shots. So there's that. Um, The other point I think is to find a great mentor. That's really the key. Find someone who has, who has been there and done that, who has done what you want to do and, um, and, you know, invest time or money or whatever it takes in a mentor You'll get wherever you want to go a lot faster, um, and whether that takes the the shape of a um, you know a trusted yeah. um, colleague or a coach you pay for or whatever, um, that's really to ta- that's a great way to take a lot of the risk out of it and to also to move a lot farther and faster than you would do on your own.
0: I think that's I think that's great advice. I think it's even more important for somebody that. You know, you came from, you said your own family was a family of entrepreneurs and, and somewhat of risk takers, obviously. And so you were kind of nurtured in that environment. But I think having a mentor, if you've got an idea and you want to become an entrepreneur and you don't come from an environment like that, yeah. it's even more valuable because it's really going to exactly. be that person that's seasoned, they've had some experience, and they're going to be that person that can guide you and give you the confidence at the right moments to take that step when exactly. you need to. It's
1: there's there, you know, even if even if it doesn't take out risk, though, I think it really does. Um, finding a mentor who has done exactly what you want to do um, is by far the, the fastest, best way to get to where you want to go. And you can eliminate, because of their experience, a lot of silly mistakes or unnecessary mistakes. You'll make all of your own mistakes, of course, <laughs> but at least you won't make the mistakes your mentor made.
0: Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. So you're you're you've you've had this history of being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur you've started a lot of businesses and some successful some some not that's every entrepreneur's experience yes. i find and so what what kind of i think you you transitioned actually into mental health what was what yeah. was that transition like and 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 i would like to at some point kind of talk about um, At Ease uh, USA, as well, and just its relationship on mental health and PTSD.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, well, uh, yeah, I think I, I, more than a transition, I, I would say that probably my interest in mental health as a field um, came along with everything else I was doing. Um, when I hired my first coach, a wonderful guy named Kevin Ross, about, gosh, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago now or 15 years ago, I guess. Um, he, uh, one of the things that, that we discovered because he wisely coached me in a, using an holistic model so that it included all aspects of my life, not just business. And one of the things that we discovered or I discovered with his help in, in this coaching was that I had a real interest in, um, uh, military families, um, both the returning veteran, but the, but the military family, uh, as a whole. And, um, uh, So in 2007, um, there were a lot of veterans returning from Afghanistan and in Iraq with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And yet I read some research that said that less than a third of them were ever getting any help for it. Yeah. Um, And even a smaller percentage of family members were getting any help because the VA doesn't treat family members. It just treats the veteran. And so. Um, when I saw the kind of shape that these folks were re- returning to the U.S. in, um, you know, it really broke my heart. And I got to meet some families um, who were going through um, this kind of horrible nightmare. And uh, it really broke my heart. And so uh, I wanted to I had an idea of creating an alternative um, to the V.A. And, and you know, since then, the V.A. has um, significantly improve the scope and the quality of their programs for sure. I mean, they, they're really doing a good job, but 13 years ago, it wasn't really the case. So, um, as part of my coaching with, with Kevin Ross, I, um, was able to start a program called Addies USA, um, which is a, um, it was developed to provide alternative clinics, um, for not just for combatants, but also for their, for their family members. Um, Because really, in terms of quantity of people, there's many more family members affected than there are combatants, obviously. And that's where the the problem of military PTSD really um, explodes exponentially. Anyway, I started this organization and started raising money and realized I didn't have very much training. In fact, zero training in any of this. I'm not even a veteran. And so um, I went back to school and got a, got a master's degree in clinical counseling just to kind of help me understand what we were doing. And that's been really, really useful in the coaching that I do um, with entrepreneurs because mindset is 90% or more, yeah. 95%. Uh, really, at the end of the day, none of my clients have talent problems or ambition problems or drive problems. Um, the only problems they ever seem to have are mindset problems, really. When you boil it down, so that's been really, really useful. And uh, so, At Ease went on to develop um, treatment technology, uh, online um, technology to treat uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, we were in a joint venture with the Tel Aviv University and the Israeli government to develop a um, a treatment app for post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, we've since run clinical trials on it, both with military, um, with, com- with combatants returning from Af- uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, and also with uh, women recovering from uh, domestic violence and sexual assault and, uh, and middle school age children with um, uh, traumatic histories and PTSD, civilian PTSD symptoms. And uh, so now we're, we're rolling out that app in partnership with Tel Aviv University in the United States. And uh, it's really exciting because there are so many people with PTSD who will never go to a clinic or talk to a therapist. It's just they're not capable of doing it. And so we wanted to create an online intervention that would allow people to get help uh, without necessarily being um, in a clinician's office. We also wanted to create a model that would scale. and. Uh, right. Uh, the problem with with one um, client seeing one therapist is that it works, but it doesn't scale. And so um, anyway, thanks for asking. But yeah. That's what that's what, it, about.
0: what what are you what are your thoughts about, you know, from a mental health uh, perspective on some of the developments in the treatments that are being developed through. I know that the, you mentioned the V.A. is is now starting to open up um, for veterans to be able to access cannabis for treatment of PTSD. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and I see a lot of research on PTSD and different types of psychedelics, I think specifically exactly. like psilocybin. What are your yeah. thoughts on like the potentials of uh, that may lie there um, as far as treating some some of the, something like PTSD?
1: Well, I think it's you know, it's obviously these things need to be researched very carefully. And um, this is why we put our own application um of uh, the technology developed by Tel Aviv University through exhaustive clinical trials. That's the key. Um, we don't want to cause more harm, and uh, you know that's sort of the core of the Hippocratic oath: is yeah. do no harm. So first, do no harm. So um, you know. But having said that, I, I'm really excited about um, uh, research into MDMA, um, ketamine. Uh, psilocybin, um, you know, there there are a lot of interesting things being evaluated. And I think it's great. Um, you know, obviously, it requires exhaustive um, research. Um, you know, one of the so the advantage to something like ketamine, for example, uh, I'll just go down this rabbit hole briefly, but the advantage to something like ketamine or even uh, MDMA is that it is dosable. It's much more um, easily dosable and understand and, and measurable and quantifiable so that we know X person who weighs X pounds right. is getting X quantity of a, um, of a known, um, chemical agent. And so, and you've probably read about a lot of research that's been done with Keteman and, uh, and more on MDMA, Um, and psilocybin might be a great Avenue. It's it needs to be synthesized. Um, you know, it's it's harder to control dosage with something that's a natural, naturally occurring, grown plant, yeah. you know, or fungus. I guess in the case of psilocybin. But anyway, to me, anything that helps is or could help is really good because the hell that people go through with post-traumatic stress disorder, and frankly with with other uh, mental health problems, yeah. is uh, you know hard to describe if you haven't been through it.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I want to I shift gears a little bit and, and head back uh, towards the entrepreneur path a little bit. Um, sure. And so I've heard you talk a little bit previously about um, kind of like how it's important to, if especially starting out when you're trying to make a name for yourself and get some market share, it's important to not try to be a one-stop shop. Can you can you kind of delve into some of the some of the nuance of of why it's important to kind of make a niche or find your your specialty at first at least and then you know delve out and widen your 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 appeal.
1: Yeah, thanks. That's I, I think that's really really important um, uh, for for entrepreneurs and especially for solopreneurs um, and small businesses. Um, in the beginning. And frankly, I have more, most of my experiences in um, solopreneurs creating um, mediums or creating small businesses that ultimately hopefully become medium-sized businesses. And there's tons of pitfalls, obviously, on that journey. Um, but one of them is exactly right, is trying to be all things to all people. And um, the, the idea behind it, and again, it kind of goes back to our conversation about reducing risk um, and reducing the The potential for failure is that we figure I'll sell everything. You know, <laughs> I'll sell everything and anything. I'll be whatever anybody wants me to be because what we're talking about in the early days of uh, entrepreneurship, we're often talking about survival because right. most uh, small businesses are are undercapitalized. So they're they're bootstrapping and and they have to survive on their own cash flow. Um, and so the thought is, well, I'll just sell anything anybody wants. And at least I'll make a sale and I'll leave, I'll live to fight another day. And a lot of companies start that way. Um, ultimately, however, uh, you know, first of all, they find if they do an 80 20 analysis, they'll find that the 20% of what they're selling accounts for 80% of their sales and 80% of their margins. Yeah. Um, so that gives you a clue as to where it may make sense to specialize. Um, the the pitfall in being all things to all people, of course, is that is that in the once you go out to the marketplace, and especially uh, now with the internet of we're competing against everybody everywhere worldwide, is that you know we're instantly commoditized. We commoditize ourselves, and we don't if we don't distinguish ourselves in solving a specific problem in a specifically exceptional way, um, then we'll quickly be commoditized. And either will be brushed off as a potential um, uh, provider uh, and discounted completely, or at a minimum, um, our fees will be discounted. So years ago, uh, you may recall, building a website was something that was kind of distinctive to be able to do. Of course, now you can get a free website in 15 minutes, I think, um, using Wix or one of the other systems. And so to to sell websites, per se, is is, uh, kind of a death spiral. Um, so we're going to have to be able to, this is just one example, but we're going to have to be able to to succeed as an entrepreneur. You're going to have to be able to understand um, a very, very specific uh, problem that is generating a ton of pain uh, to the prospective customer. But if we can't distinguish ourselves in that way, beyond just executing a tactic, then we can only charge what the market will bear. And today with Upwork and truly worldwide competition for everything. Um, You know, if you've ever been to Upwork recently, you realize that there are people who are willing to do your $100 an hour service for $5 an hour. Um, And and unless you can show why yours is worth 20 times more than the person who's selling it for $5, you know, you've commoditized yourself. So that's part of it. Um, Understanding, um, a, a colleague of mine refers to a bleeding neck need uh, to understand that they're, uh, to identify a bleeding neck need in your marketplace is really the the key to it. Um, and and then also having an exceptionally good solution for it. Yeah. So I've, uh, most of my clients, I advise to, um, to find a niche where they can own it. I discovered this in the advertising agency business. For a long time, we were all things to all people. It worked until it didn't work. And our sales plateau and we found that we were competing for business that we couldn't compete for because there was nothing about us that was particularly special or would win us the the business once we began to uh, focus on specific niches where we had um really deep knowledge beyond just executing tactics um that would actually move people's businesses then um, we started to get traction both in terms of being competitive in the marketplace but also in terms of having pricing power uh, and not being commoditized so that we can name our price versus having the market name us, name it for us.
0: Now that makes, that makes sense. Um, Another thing that, you know, uh, that I, I, I know a lot of other people experience as they go through, not even just the entrepreneur's journey, but their own career path, just maybe they are working for a company, but they're working their way through a company um, is Getting to a point where, you know, I I grew up in a time too, and I started out in in the audio industry and and it was kind of like, you pay your dues, you work for free sometimes, and and then you eventually get the right to earn money. (laughs) And so I'm familiar with that. But there comes a point, I think, in everybody's life where they realize, you know, I've got something of value up here in my head through my experience. And it was fine to give it away and prove to people that I knew what I was talking about to earn a reputation for a while. But how do you make that? How do you how do people what's the best way for people to make that transition to actually start to acquire value, (laughs) monetarily speaking, most of the time for that knowledge instead of just giving it away for free?
1: Boy, that's a great question. And, you know, what I find with with some of my clients is that they Um, I was, in fact, just on a coaching call this morning with a a guy who is a 10 year um, veteran in the public relations industry and but is still pricing his services and and marketing his services as he did when he was maybe five years or three years experience. But he now has exponentially more um, value to add, but he's leaving it on the table because he's not selling it. He's not marketing it. Um uh, appropriately, he's not um, uh, demonstrating how this extra value can solve these very painful problems. Um and he, and as a result, he's also pricing um, uh, himself at a deep discount to the to the value he really adds. So a lot of times when people have been in business for a while and they' found something that that works, maybe not perfectly, but works at all, um they get into a rut and do the same thing day after day and forget that, um, you know, I've got 10 years of experience and I've got insights that people at two years don't have. Um, You know, the main thing is is to validate with the market that you have, um, that it's not just experience, but that your experience will help solve a problem in the marketplace that is an acute pain that people have right this minute and will throw money to solve. Um, You know, if you don't, so all the experience in the world won't translate into added value unless you can connect it with that market need. Um, I was talking to another client this morning um, in the trucking industry. And um, there's a lot of freight tech technology that tries to match um, shippers with with truckers, for example, um, in a nuanced way. And and all of that technology is wonderful. But unless it solves a bleeding neck problem, um, uh, people won't pay for it. Right. And so that's the main thing is to take what you know. Um, and because, you know, if you have a deep understanding, the audio industry or any industry, um, hopefully that'll help point you to what is the really sharpest pain being felt by more people than anything else in the industry.
0: Right.
1: So it isn't enough to have the the uh, experience to bring to the table, but hopefully that experience will guide you to solving a problem that's the most acute in your field. Yeah,
0: it seems like always going through that transition. There's always a stage that I think a lot of people refer to as the imposter syndrome, where oh, they're yes. kind of like, I know I know this, but do I really know? Do should I really boast about what I know? Like do, you know, to let people know, should I consider myself an expert because I think I know it? Because you know, I, everybody that's driven and it's very successful and and motivated and accomplishes a lot. the people that I have met, at least have always been very, they're never satisfied, they're always learning, and they realize that they can always continue to learn more. And so there's always that feeling like I don't know everything. And so how how do people kind of grapple or how do you recommend people to kind of grapple with overcoming that, that mentality of the imposter syndrome, so to speak, to 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 make that step and step out into the the forefront?
1: You know that's a it's a remarkably common thing, even with high achievement people and particularly with uh, entrepreneurs that are achieving at a very, very high level. and um, and you know, part of it is, again, and it has to do with this risk tolerance or actually kind of an appetite for risk. Um, but what happens uh, often is that folks are doing things um, and they're engaged at a at a level with a new idea where they're kind of on the cutting edge of something. And um, the, because they have this risk appetite and risk tolerance, and so what happens as a result is that they they can be literally at the edge of what they know. Um, they may be inventing um, you know, the solutions to problems in real time. And uh, this is, as I say, this is especially true with um, with entrepreneurs that are um, that are really pushing the um, pushing the envelope and, and moving at a, a really quick speed. Um, so there's, I, I wrote a piece on this recently. So imposter syndrome generally is to, um, it's all a measure of how good you really are versus how good you think you are. And so imposter syndrome uh, would be, they could be very high on the how good you really are scale, but on the how good you think you are scale <clears throat> scale, they might be rather low. right? And this kind of goes to the question we were talking about earlier, of people who've been doing something for a long time and take what they know for granted. And they assume, um, they sort of forget that it's taken them 10 years or 20 years or however long to know what they know. And they assume, I know it. So how hard can it be for somebody else to know? True. And it's kind of a built-in um, uh, check, check and balance system that our minds have that, that uh, you know, and it's to our benefit of making sure that we do add value, that it's not just bullshit. Um, but what happens to a lot of people who've been in the in business for a long time is that they do tend to discount what they know because they know it and it's easy for them. They have mastery. And they figure if it's easy, the only thing that's easy, you know, th- the only things in life that are easy are things that don't have very much value. And so they tend to discount it. But what they fail to remember sometimes is that it's taken 20 years and lots of hard work to know what they know. And the only reason it's easy for them is because they put in the effort to master it. And this is why uh, occasionally I'll run into um, entrepreneurs who mainly for lack of any feedback um, and the lack of a mentor will um, will discount what they're doing. They'll misprice it. They'll misrepresent it in the marketplace. And mainly because uh, they've they've forgotten that to get to where they are has taken all kinds of time. And it's only easy for them now because they've mastered it. The other... So the the opposite of the imposter syndrome is, and you you may know this term, the Dunning Kruger effect, and this is the opposite where people um, think that they know a lot more than they really do know. Um, and and sometimes entrepreneurs can be at this end of the spectrum as well. Yeah, and uh, they sort of generalize that I'm brilliant as a dentist, so I must be brilliant in physics and <laughs> cars and everything else. And uh, we've had a couple of politicians who have fallen victim to Dunning-Kruger uh, effect. And they're both, in both cases, it's just a you know, fundamental misunderstanding of what the value is that they offer and where their expertise really lies. Again, another reason it's so good to have a, a mentor in your life who can be very candid with you.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I I also see in in society today, and I I feel like this has happened a lot more since you know the dot coms and the in tech development of tech companies and things like that, where there's a real trend towards the startup, and I think people see that, you know, sometimes things it's very hard to make a startup successful. I'm not disrespecting that at all or disregarding that, but. Things sometimes, when they kind of coalesce the first time, the momentum starts to build and things kind of fall in place and the momentum builds on its own. But when you get to a certain point and then you start to scale, that's when it's a comp- it, it starts to really change the game and become much different. And oftentimes you, you, or you see in the news where a company will become certain a certain level of success, or reach a certain set level of success. And there'll be a change at the top in the management level, you know, maybe not at the very top, but sometimes it is at the very top and it just depends what, what is the reasoning for that? And can, obviously there are value, there is value in being a leader, but also knowing how to follow because, you know, throughout a company, especially if you're scaling it, it feels like there are people that need to be both leaders as well as be followers because everybody has a boss, it feels like, and everybody, you know, at a certain point has, has people under them as well.
1: You know, uh, that's, I I think that that's, that goes so much to the idea of what got you here won't get you there. And a lot of times entrepreneurs um, are exactly what you need to get the company from, uh, from the germ of an idea to um, a minimally viable product or uh, or something that you can actually sell, um, but scale often requires um, a set of skills and really a mindset that entrepreneurs often don't have mm-hmm. um, and you know a classic example is in uh, and I don't know what year this was, but um, uh, it, Apple got to a place where it had gone. Um, it It was a very very successful company clearly and um uh, at a certain point the um the uh, people at uh apple including um including Steve jobs um, but the shareholders in particular um, thought that they should bring in somebody who is, had more scale experience at a fortune one hundred level so they brought in John Scully um, who was the um he was known for his work at Pepsi, and very strong—not just very strong brand experience, but very strong um, management experience. And the thought was that he would um, it, he would bring uh, uh, the company. He would help the company scale from the original days of, of Steve Jobs and uh, and uh, Wozniak to the next level. And um, so and he was part of the birth of Macintosh. He was side by side with um, with Steve Jobs when Macintosh was was unveiled. But, you know, this was the thinking at the time anyway, was that um, that for Apple to take the next step and to scale to a Fortune 100 or a Fortune uh, 50 or Fortune 20 or 100 or 10 company, they would need someone who had done that before and who had operated that way. And, you know, sometimes it succeeds and sometimes it fails. Ultimately, Scully left. Ultimately, Steve Jobs left. And ultimately, Steve Jobs came back to the company, <laughs> um, as you know, and uh, did a pretty decent job with it. So, um, but that's, you know, that happens a lot, that that companies, um, that the skills of the entrepreneur uh, and the vision and the passion of the entrepreneur are absolutely necessary. But once you get to a certain point, um, the same skills that that created Apple, for example wouldn't uh, help scale Apple and um, the entrepreneur visionary may um, be, be uh, beyond their own skill level certainly beyond their own experience level, but also beyond the point where they're interested. I, I think this is certainly part of, of my, um, the reason I'm a serial entrepreneur was that I really like starting things, um, getting things off the ground, um, helping them be successful, but like a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm not very interested in um, managing systems and bureaucracy. Um, and there are a lot of people who are great at that and should do it. Um, and and it, it's really hard to know what's that point where you should get out and and you know and not get in the way. Uh, there have been a couple of companies where I was in the way um, and um, and should have left sooner than I did uh, because. Uh, you know, being the visionary owner is is really good to a certain point, but it can really become a big impediment. Yeah. Uh, it could become a boat anchor, frankly, to the company. And so, um, sometimes founders stay too long.
0: Well, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's uh, very tempting. You know, you you start something up and it, and you're part of the birth of it, so to speak, and you know you're kind of emotionally attached to to it to some extent yes. as well. And so it's it's hard, obviously hard to walk away. Um, I also you know, wanted to touch base a little bit, you know, you, you talk a lot uh, that you, you work more with like individuals or smaller setups, but from maybe a mental health standpoint and just your understanding of the, of the workforce that's in today's market, it feels like there's a real shift in the workforce in the sense that there is a lot, there are a lot more, um, Mental and emotional uh, requirements that companies have to meet for employees today, instead of kind of the old mentality of where, if you want the job, you conform to the, (laughs) conform to the to the environment and to the job, and and you just do it. And you know, part of that I wonder is is if that stems from maybe this newer generation also having grown up with computers, internet, social media in particular, and it's triggering of like gratification, the need for uh, validation and, and gratification instead of uh, just kind of powering and, and uh, embracing the grind and the struggle, so to speak?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I've done a lot of work uh, over the last two years, um, specifically on the topic of burnout. Um, and, you know, obviously through COVID, um, there has been the the reported incident, uh, incidents. Of burnout is is off the charts. Um, you know the the reported um, instance in the workplace of burnout um, historically, as measured by the Gallup people, uh, up until uh, twenty twenty, was that that at any one point in time there was always something like twenty three to twenty five percent of the workforce that would would report feeling always burned out. Yeah. But in um, during COVID and the measure jumped in April. From 40% always in to September, where people reporting 60% always feeling burned out, um, and uh, which is you know, a really scary shift um, in, in, um, in burnout scores. And burnout now is, is regarded by the World Health Organization um, as a bona fide mental health disorder. Um, it's also similarly with the American Psychiatric Association or APA. And in fact, in the next um, diagnostic manual, the DSM six, burnout will be listed as one of the bona fide um, disorders that people experience. So, this is a very real um, problem. First of all, the depression and, and anxiety and chronic fatigue that come with with burnout are are a real problem in a couple of different ways. And and one of the things that that especially right now in markets in the U.S. where unemployment um, never got very high during COVID and is now at historic lows again, is that there just isn't enough workforce. Um, and there are a lot of people who are opting out, at least temporarily, opting out of the work, the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, anecdotally, I have a number of clients who are getting waves and waves of resignations from people who say, I just can't, I need a rest. I just can't do it. You know, physically, yeah. emotionally, can't do it. Um, and in some cases have saved various federal incentive dollars um, or support dollars to the point where they can take or they feel as though they can take a month off or two months off or a year off, even in some cases. So um, this is something that we're really going to have to be facing. Um, The Corn and Ferry people, the global organizational um, development company, um, calls this a a current pandemic, kind of follow-on pandemic to COVID. this workforce burnout situation. And, um, you know, this has always been present and particularly with high performance people um, and the, the sort of the population that I work with, but it's becoming truer and truer across the entire workforce. Um, we've we have created a, a, a program and a system specifically to address that um, based on um, the most current clinical research around the symptoms that are most common with burnout, and the the um, the systems and the processes that develop that deliver the best results. But this is something that, to your point, all employers are are facing right now. I talked to a um, just as a, an anecdotal example, I talked to a uh, a company that is basically they own a franchise uh, school system, and in in one week they had five of their fifty teachers resign. And all of them cited depression and anxiety as the cause uh, bur- or basic burnout symptoms. Um, I talked to another uh, client who had four people quit um, in one day and they had one person commit suicide that same week. Wow. And so it's. Um, it's a very significant healthcare matter. And and obviously it also becomes a really important business issue. So companies, to your point, companies that can anticipate this and um, and create um, solutions and offer their colleagues um, tools and skills that they can use and and create a working environment thats um, that doesn't cause burnout and hopefully relieves it are going to be those that have the, the, the most competitive advantage going forward. Um, they'll have the highest engagement. They'll have the, the highest retention. They'll have the least turnover. Um, and, and ultimately, the highest productivity and innovation, and so forth. But right now, this is an issue that that companies really can only overlook at their own peril, and and also individual leaders, entrepreneurs, and business owners, um, you know, have to take care of themselves as well as their teams, because the last year in particular is, is driven people to a point where um, burnout is is double the rate that it was at least uh, prior to COVID.
0: Yeah. I, f- I feel like you're, you're almost speaking to me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm notorious. My friends uh, are, are on me all the time because I haven't taken a real vacation in years. Um, I'm terrible for working through straight through to the, the weekend and around to the next week. And uh, so I, I, I understand this completely. Um, but even, even, and even outside of my regular job, you know, I find other things to do. And it's one of the reasons, like you said, there is, there is an aspect. And I guess I do embrace the aspect of taking care of myself in the sense that I do try to exercise and take care of my body because I know if I get sick, that's downtime and it's, it's, that becomes costly. And so that aspect of it, I do try to, 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 to take a break and, and take and attend to that aspect. But, um, you know, how, do, how does somebody shift from being in that go mode and kind of realizing that, hey, maybe I'm on the fringe of kind of reaching my my point of burnout and I need to take that break? How can they can they is there a key to like realizing that and, and pulling back off the gas?
1: Well, there are some very specific skills um, that that we've um, put into our our burnout uh, prevention and treatment system. The So it may help to kind of look at the main symptoms. You know, the, the, the primary symptoms identified by a World Health Organization are chronic exhaustion, um, number one, that's usually the one that people see the most often or see the earliest. The second one is a, um, a feeling of negativity and isolation, um, to feel more and more isolated from other people, whether it's in COVID or not, um, and to also feel uh, more and more negative uh, in terms of hope for the future and in terms of satisfaction and fulfillment. And the third one is um, a feeling of real, um, not just negativity, but blaming others, um, blaming um, uh, co-workers, blaming even customers, and ultimately bringing that home um, and, and having a really negative relationship with family members is at the most serious side, or at the most serious side, I guess, is a, a real feeling of hopelessness and suicidal ideation. Um, we hope nobody ever gets to that point, right. but, they, but people do. So starting with chronic fatigue, um, one of the things that we know from research is that um, the, reason, the core reason for burnout is unrelieved, unrelenting um, chronic stress. So stress that is just constant. And one of the reasons why you know, I always recommend that people take vacations. For example, <laughs> although I'm not much better than you, um, is is because we need to have that stress relief. Right. But a vacation, you know, in the U.S., two weeks a year max is is not going to get it done. So, you know, it's very much like the athlete that that trains and trains. Uh, they grow muscle by creating micro tears in the muscle, but there also has to be micro recovery, recovery. Uh, for those Absolutely. muscles. Otherwise, the muscles will actually tear micro tears can create muscle and create muscle memory and all of that, but without the proper recovery time, the muscles were tear. And it's similar from a mental health standpoint. Um, you know, we, we work and work and work and work and work, but we need to have mental or emotional and physical recovery much more than two weeks a year. Um, and we needed to have it on a daily basis. So some of the skills that, that we, um, uh, recommend, for example, is the, you've probably heard of the Pomodoro method, which says, um, you know, work for 50 minutes, but um, relax for 10. And there's a lot of science behind that that says that you're, um, when you allow your mind and your body to relax and to detach and to intentionally disengage from work 10 minutes on yeah. the hour or five minutes on the half hour, the, the caliber of the work that you do is significantly improved. But it also... Makes us as people much more uh, able to um, to uh, sustain without exhaustion, to sustain this kind of level of work without exhaustion. So micro recoveries um, are are really important, even between phone calls or between uh, podcast interviews, um, for for people to to take time to um, to detach from the work psychologically. And and that may mean, for a lot of people, we recommend just walk outside for five minutes or two minutes, or even at your desk, we have some specific mindfulness skills that even in 10 seconds, you can get a, a micro vacation from what you're doing. But so one of the key steps in preventing and treating burnout is for there to be recovery all day long, not waiting for the two weeks, every two years but all day long. And so exercise can definitely play a a role in that for sure. But, but even more frequently during the day, recovery is very important.
0: Yeah. I, I, my, my body is, it it always tells me when I've sat at the desk too long or in the chair too long. So about, about an hour to an hour and a half, I I need to get up and, you know, stretch for 10 minutes or so. And then I'm ready to kind of go again and, 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 and go after it. So um, I, I totally get where you're coming from. And that's that's some great advice. Um, I know we're coming up on uh, your time here. So I want to be respectful um, of it. Um, I just had one last question, you know, from a from an entrepreneur standpoint. Um, do you are you are you looking into the crypto world at all? Uh, it's a, a hot topic these days. And uh, just wondering yeah. if, if, if you're kind of looking at that at all
1: you know i'm from omaha nebraska which is the home of warren buffett and charlie munger the uh the um uh, managers and uh, and primary owners of berkshire hathaway and uh, charlie munger and warren buffett but especially charlie munger who's actually in los angeles but an omaha guy um has has written extensively about cryptocurrency and certainly a lot of people made a lot of money in the short term um but his concern is very much like the the tulip craze uh, in the 1800s, that there isn't any inherent value in 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 crypto. and you know it's hard to ignore the the millions being made or billions maybe by some people. but again, um it uh, my my uh, I guess my problem with it would is that i I fundamentally don't understand why it has any value mm. and um and ultimately, whether it's the tulip craze of the 1800s or potentially crypto craze today, um, you know, the long-term future of, of, uh, Bitcoin, et cetera, is elusive to me, but it could be because I'm too old and, uh, I'm fully willing to accept that. <laughs> <laughs> My mind is not broad enough to, uh, to understand, um, crypto.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's it seems like it, it is a, a difficult uh, subject to grasp, especially some of the topics of it. And there's a ton of information out there just in the world in general. So there's only so much time and uh, resources. And
1: that's part of it. You yeah, know. absolutely.
0: Yeah, well. I, uh, where can, where can people find you at? I know you, you host this, uh, this, uh, Double Dare, uh, consulting, uh, and, and so forth. Where can people find you if they maybe want to touch base with you and get some, get in touch to, to do some work?
1: Absolutely. The best way to find me is doubledareyou.us, DoubleDareYOU.us. And, um, we have a lot of information there about everything we talked about today. Um, and particularly about our burnout, um, system uh burnout treatment system and um if anybody wants more information double dare you y-o-u double dare you dot us there you go ladies and gentlemen and ken are and you R-U-S. on social,
0: social media anywhere
1: uh yeah uh on um on twitter instagram um facebook uh, you know look for double dare
0: double dare we double dare you to do it all right. Well, thank, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you coming on board and uh, chatting with me this morning. I uh, really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: All right. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining this episode. If you like the content, what you've seen, please like subscribe, hit the follow button, and we'll see you next time. Until then, peace, love, and power to the people.